Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All Star Squadron. She said. <laughs> ah, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and I like coffee. <laughs> coffee is good. <laughs> Hello, <sighs> folks. And my name is Snark McGill. And, uh... Snark McGill. <laughs> <laughs> so good morning, princess. How did you, how did you sleep? Ah, uh, I had the weirdest dream Uh-oh. that me and my family were trapped on Hoth with uh, Count Dooku sentencing <laughs> us to death. <laughs> and I'm not even kidding on that. You make me feel normal when you say things like that, because I thought I was the only one that had geeky dreams like that. And I was just like, what the... And, and it's funny, because I wasn't worried about dying. I was just curious as to why Count Dooku was on Hoth. Which yep. proves that I'm a dork. <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that has dreams where I'm like thumbing through long boxes and being amazed by what I'm finding. I didn't know the Phantom Stranger fought the Hulk, you know, stuff like that. So. <laughs> we are recording earlier than we normally do because of Scott's current schedule, which actually worked out nicely if my, you know, work didn't fucking call me in early and yes. cut us off because we were supposed to have a nice long episode, but, uh,. This one's going to be a little shorter than normal, but that's not a bad thing. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people out there going, good. Oh, you thank God, anyway. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope this is a massive, awesome one because, uh, you know, this is how much I love you people. I am interrupting a very important download for this show. I actually found, and maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm not sure if it's commercially available. What, what the hell? I'm going to say it anyway. I found a torrent out there for the Shazam Isis Hour, and I am so excited, and I'm Isis right in the middle of it. Isis was released on DVD. Shazam has not yet been Ah, okay. DVD. Well, whatever whatever is out there, then I will, uh, I will do the right thing. But uh, yeah, Shazam, I've been trying to get it forever. Finally found a torrent. Hopefully it's good quality, but yeah, I got I gots to own that, so... So yeah, see, that's how dedicated I am to you folks. So anyway, it's funny that you and I's mission in life right now is just to reclaim portions of our childhood. Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> I think that's always been my mission. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that dedication is, is more than generously reciprocated because, as you may recall, and you know, this is the funny thing. Seriously, Mike, I, I almost uh, messaged you last week to say, you know that, that, that thing where I did the kind of begathon there? It, it didn't come off the way I intended. I wanted it to be very light, very jokey, and I was kind of embarrassed by the way I think it did come off. So I almost messaged you to be like, hey, why don't you cut that part of the show out? And then, you know, me being me, I totally forgot about it. So then when the episode actually came out and I heard that, I was like cringing. I was like, shit, I, mess- I meant to message him about that. But you guys were uh, were awesome about my my chiding you and uh, wow I mean people stepped up and we uh, we got not one donation not two donations we got four donations <laughs> and this was awesome I, I am I am so touched and so pleased and uh, wow thank you guys so so much so the beginning of this episode is going to be total uh, <laughs> tales of the JSA butt kiss fest in 2011 well we, we promised we would yes we did yes we did and uh right off the bat um these are only in the order that uh that i received them so i i don't want there to seem like there's any any favoritism anything like that it's just this is the order that things came in so right off the bat uh huge huge thank yous to our sponsors um, first, we have uh, Victor Walker. Thank you very, very much, Victor. And he sends who, a message. Just oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Who, uh, who came up to me at the comic show I went to last Sunday and told us he told me he was uh, he was sending a donation. He tried to do it from his iPhone, but it wasn't really working out the, so well. But uh, he was he was just like I'm first, right? I'm first, right? <laughs> That was, it's so awesome. He just, the, the message he has here, he says, I'll send an email uh, with my message later, he says. But for now, I'll just let you know that this donation is for Tales of the JSA. Thank you so, so much. We got a donation from uh, our good buddy, Alan Leach Jr., who did not include a message. Uh, we got one from Kelly, and I sure hope I don't butcher this last name. Is it Logue? It's L-O-G-U-E. Yeah, and I think it's Logue. He's a... Uh... He's a he's somebody that used to write into views all the time, and he's hooked up with uh, he runs uh, the Better in the Dark website. Oh, okay, all right. I know I didn't know that. And uh, he had written in. Uh, he says responding to your call to sponsor an episode of Tales. Uh, he says from the JSA. <laughs> Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you very very much. And we got one from uh, David Walker, who says, since you wanted someone to sponsor Tales, and since you played my promo in there, here's some money, he says. Uh, what do I do if I want my message green in the opener? He says, that's a joke, by the way, which I, I'm sorry, I don't get the joke on that one. <laughs> do you get that one? Uh, no, but he has a uh, Flash podcast Oh, uh, that he's doing that we played the promo for. That's right. The, the, yeah, the I loved that promo. It's, yeah, it's the one that started with uh, with the Flash Gordon theme, and I was yeah. like, oh wow, is somebody doing a Flash Gordon podcast? That's cool. <laughs> no, I liked I liked the first episode quite a bit. He's covering the Wally West Flash from, I believe, the end of Crisis to Infinite Crisis something like that oh, wow and he his first episode was uh the wally west new teen titans appearances that happened before wally got his own series and before legends so uh he's being thorough so i was very impressed and he uh he's from ireland and at first i really didn't notice like a discernible accent but every once in a while he would say something and i'd hear it which he probably doesn't hear because it's not an accent to him. Right. We, prob- we probably sound funny to him. So, well, I sound give- funny to everybody. <laughs> I'm gonna have to give that a listen to because that uh, that's the one era of Flash that I feel like I'm fairly familiar with because you know post crisis when everything started up again and there were so many new books and everything uh i was getting basically everything that dc was putting out and flash was one of those titles and i i stayed with that title for quite a long time at least the first i want to say two or three years uh, i stayed with that book so yeah I, i'll have to listen to that one uh he says no special me- uh, special message uh but i hope you put the money to good use he says i know it's not much 
but Christmas is coming soon. Sorry, dude, do not apologize. Thank you so yeah, much. We, we are so thankful for, for uh, any and all donations. Yeah, so Victor's like, you. well, how much should I give? And I'm just like, whatever you feel like. Exactly, I mean, yes. It's kind of like, it's, it, I, we feel bad enough asking, uh, even jokingly, uh, you know, for donations. So it's just like, you know, it's kind of like that, you know... I always looked at the PayPal thing, and I, and I did this when I was running views as kind of like a tip jar. You know, there's right, exactly yes, there, no pressure to put anything in there. Exactly, but we might mention it every once in a while that hey, there's a tip jar. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I have been truly blessed in my life that I have not been accosted by beggars more than just a couple of times, just a handful of times in my entire life. But I have heard horror stories of people living in cities. And I want to say maybe San Francisco is one of them. I, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage any city. I'm just saying I've heard horror stories where like beggars will come up and ask somebody for money. And the person will be generous enough to, like, hand them a buck or something. Another person will be like, is that all? Or you got any more? I'm just saying right now to all the beggars that listen to this show, if you ever do that to me, I will beat the shit out of you right there on the spot. That is so incredibly uncool. There's no way I would put up with that. So, yeah, you know, our, our tip jar, I don't care what's put in there. If you put something in there, I will kiss your ass. So, yes, thank you guys so much. <laughs> So this, much. This image of a bunch of kids like dressed as if they just left the production of, of Oliver and we're kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Mister, can I have a quarter? <laughs> Trick or treat for UNICEF. Get the hell off my porch! <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Trick or treat for UNICEF. <laughs> hey, we used to have to do it when I was a kid. You I don't think UNICEF. Well, yeah, well, we used to, we used to, they used to hand out the boxes. Okay. It was like a little box that you would fold, almost like a mini comic box that you would carry around at trick-or-treat time. And you were supposed to, like, trick-or-treat and, like, you know, for candy and all. But then you would also hold up the box and say trick-or-treat for UNICEF, you know, in, in case people would want to give you money for it or whatever. And I can remember doing that in, like, grade school and stuff. I don't know if a dime of it ever made its way to UNICEF or not, but I remember doing it when I was a kid. <laughs> but you know, that woman that I gave the money to had a really nice dress about an hour, uh, like a couple days after the money was turned in. So <laughs> there's a Stand By Me reference that I doubt anybody will get. No, so. I didn't. I didn't get that one myself. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do something uh, unorthodox and slightly controversial here. I am going to jump ahead because we are still uh, a bit behind, a bit backed up in our emails. But I'm going to jump I ahead. I got fiber for that. To, um, <laughs> to the two most recent emails just because they are so relevant to uh, events that, uh, you know, that we're talking about right now What with... Uh, the, the call for sponsorship and what. And the uh, first one here is from our buddy Stan Johnston. And he says, how soon they forget. He says, hi, guys. He says, <clears throat> I believe you good gentlemen are mistaken about never having an episode of Tales sponsored. It wasn't that many episodes ago, uh, 54, 55, that you credited me as a sponsor because I did indeed toss a few dollars in the tip jar specifically for this show. Now that you have insulted me, I'll be taking my future business to Comic Geek Speak. Oh, no. He says, and I'll sponsor them for a lot more, too. He says, I'm bullshitting about being insulted, of course, but I did want you guys, uh, want to give you guys a little poke in the ribs, especially you, Bailey. Steel trap memory, my ass. <laughs> Later, Stan. The trap has some holes in it. It's actually funny that he mentions that because I was joking on Facebook the other day. Uh, I'll remember things Scott says on an episode. I will forget 85% of the stuff I say on a podcast the minute I'm done editing. Like, I won't remember saying things, even though I, I know damn well when people pointed out that I did. So my, 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 my memory's good. It's just... A little wonky. Uh, I was exposed to blue kryptonite. <laughs> there you go. Wait, shit. That would mean I'm bizarro, Mike. Yeah, there should have been a, a kryptonite that made you stupid. There really should have been. I mean, they had all these other kind. They had kryptonite that like killed plants, and kryptonite that would take your powers away and stuff like. There should have been just a kryptonite that would just make you dumb. I think that would have been a, a good uh, a good story device, don't you? Yes, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> 
Well, didn't Red Kryptonite? No, that was. I'm thinking of Superman number eleven, where the first post-crisis appearance of Mister Mixia Spitalik, where for a, a panel, uh, Mixie turned Superman into Alfred E. Newman. Yes. Yeah. Like a pretty dead-on Alfred E. Newman, too. So. <laughs> Alrighty, we got another one from our good buddy Devin Clancy, who uh, we talked about last episode as being very generous with us as well. Uh, his email is is titled "Listener Appreciation Episode." It says Tailsers. Still, really don't know how to say that. Uh, <laughs> I had a really shitty day at work last Friday and spent the weekend moping around the house, feeling sorry for myself. Food had no taste. Beer had no bubbles, and that Star Trek movie marathon on cable might as well have been a bunch of Twilight movies. Little did I know that someone had released a podcast spending an hour talking about me, or at least some of the comics I used to own. That was really the cure for my malaise, but I didn't get around to listening to it till Monday, so I spent all weekend in a funk for no reason. (laughs) I'm thrilled you liked the books I sent. I'm really glad I could do something in return for all the hours of podcasting you've done. I intend to do the same for the guys over at From Crisis to Crisis, which is my other favorite comics podcast, because Devin's got good taste. Uh, (laughs) But I haven't gotten around to it yet. Besides, the hosts and their guests are kind of a sketchy bunch, and Jeffrey Taylor would probably prefer that I divide my books and hand them out to the proletariat anyway, seeing as how he's a copy. (laughs) I'll have to send that to Jeff. Preach it, brother, preach it! (laughs) Jeff would get a really big kick out of that, too. Actually, part of the reason I haven't done that is my store started doing a brisk business right after you guys talked about it on Tales. So I've been sort of busy filling orders. Good! Yes! Uh, Business in September was my best month ever. No one mentioned that they heard of the show from you guys, but I assume there's a connection, so that was cool. So thanks for a nice surprise on the podcast week. It really showed up at the right time. I figured you'd both be interested in my expensive older books and a massive volume of cheaper stuff, but I didn't think it would come down exactly on party lines. The different... (laughs) The difference in the size of the two packages was hilarious. Wait, did I just compare two guys' packages? <laughs> Not what I meant to do there. He's saying your package is bigger than mine, which is a damn lie, and you know it. <laughs> for the record, Scott, uh, for the record, Scott cost me a metric shit ton in postage, but I appreciated all the room his selections made in my comic closet. My wife is going to Disney World with her goddaughter at the end of the month, so I started... So I told her to start thinking any monorail people she sees for the additional <laughs> square footage. Hey, send me, uh, get in touch with me, Devin. Let me know uh, where she's headed and all that sort of thing. Because um, uh, that, that's something I'll mention a little bit later here. Um, I'm, I'm not in monorails anymore. So anyway. I was also annoyed at Scott because the box was too fit, big to fit in the automated post office <laughs> machine. So I had to stand in line like it was the 19th century or something. <laughs> but I like that his taste in books seem to match up with the stuff that I bought when they came out in the 80s and 90s. DC Challenge was my first exposure to anyone who wasn't in the Super Friends, so I've always had good memories of its craziness. I don't know if it holds up, but I hope you guys talk about it at some point. That Trek stuff is cool, too, since my other that was my other passion at the time. The books Mike picked all came from my mother's boyfriend who collected comics in the 60s and 70s. I've had them for about 20 years now, and I picked them up at just about the time I started to lose interest in comics, so I never did much more than look through a few of them. I only started thinking about them about four or five years ago and getting them together to sell what got me back interested in comics again. I'm glad to hear someone genuinely excited about reading them because m- much of the rest of that collection got encased in CGC plastic and sold, so who knows if anyone will read them. These Bronze Age DC books don't move that quickly on comics collectors' lives, so I may eventually put them on eBay. Oh, and that was an actual, uh, there was an actual show-related point to this email. In September, I went to Spain on my honeymoon. Well, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Of course, I found a comic store while they're in Barcelona, and they had actual collections of All-Star Squadron. So you can stop saying every issue has never been collected. They came out a few years ago in a 10-volume series called JSA Classico. Here's a link to the store website. He gives the website. I attached some pictures of the volume I bought. Of course, the whole thing is in Spanish, but that minor detail shouldn't matter. The Spanish publisher who has the rights to the DC stuff apparently has a pretty robust collections program. There was even a huge omnibus type type books collecting some of the FCTC era Superman that have never been collected here. 
For current comics, they seem to be translated two issues at a time and sell them together. They were about six to eight months behind when I was there. Thanks for the episode. It was really cool to hear you guys talk about those comics. Devin, and he included some pictures, and yeah. Scott likes the cover to that one. Yes, this looks awesome, dude. This is a really, really nice collection. But, uh, yeah, I love these pictures. This looks really nice. I, I hope DC does something like this over here eventually, because I would think that this would sell like hotcakes, dude. I like the fact that the cover is in English, but the actual comic is in Spanish. Por si jodengena. Yeah, I love the cover, because it's uh, that cover to, I'm not sure which, it's like 38, I think, where uh, Cap and uh, Superman are fighting. It's awesome. Oh, That's there's a nice. nice picture of Cap and Superman whomping the crap out of each other. Yes. Too, so. <laughs> yes. Wow. It is. That it's is so nice. Awesome. No, I, I'm, I'm pretty excited that they did that, I guess. <laughs> it's just kind of sad that the only place they can sell these things is in Spain. Um, <laughs> I know. I mean, what, what is up with that? I wonder, if, are they still online to do that... Uh, uh, what do you call it? The showcase that they were supposed to be putting out? The black and white? As far as I know, yes. I haven't heard any cancellations on that, so. I mean, at least it's something. You know, at least something will be coming out. And some of that art will look beautiful in black and white. But, I mean, yes, this is will. gorgeous. This The pictures he's got here, these are full color and everything. And the printing process looks really, really nice. Mm-hmm. So, let's hope. Let's hope. Maybe we can. Uh, did anything ever come of uh, of you guys were uh, were pestering somebody at DC there a while back about reprinting the Dark Knight over Metropolis? Um, ever come of that? Nothing came through through the email. We never heard from Ian Sattler. Uh, Jeffrey talked to Bob Wayne, who's one of the high muckety mucks at DC, and he said it sounded like a great idea, and that was it. Uh, we were at least hoping that they would release it as one of their 100-page spectaculars that they've right, been putting yeah. out recently uh, that have some cool stuff in them, collecting portions of Superman that have never been collected before. Uh, unfortunately, they seem to be sticking with um, stuff that has to do with like Jeff Loeb and Jeff Johns and all that. Maybe they think that's all they can... And, and James Robinson, because they released one that I got that has... Uh, the th first three issues of Legends of the DC Universe, when that title came out, the first three s issues were a Superman story where he was fighting, like it was a new version of the Ultra Humanite. Right. Uh, that was a pretty decent story, so... And I'm hoping, you know, we'd like it. I, uh... You know, All-Star Squadron and, and that stuff is mired in that... Uh, how the contracts worked out with the creators back then uh, and how much they get in terms of royalties which makes it kind of cost prohibitive for DC to reprint them unless they take like a flat fee which means mm -hmm. they're losing a good bit of money uh, but I was reading something about that on, uh, on and if you're not reading this blog read Jim Shooter's blog yeah because it's it's <laughs> it's very funny um it's got a lot... He, he tells a lot of behind-the-scenes stories that, you know, I always I always take anything any creator says at this point, no matter how much I like them, with kind of a grain of salt, because I'm a big believer in there's three versions of a, of a story. There's what he said, there's what she said, and then there's what really happened. Right. So, uh, which is nothing against... Um, nothing against Jim Shooter. It's just, you know, there might be another version of the story. But he tends to admit to that. Uh, a lot of the time, too. Like, you know, I don't remember this exactly. Someone, you know, write in and tell me. And his um, his comment sections are always very, very lively. So, but he was, uh, he, he posted somewhere on his blog a letter he got regarding uh, how collected editions were going to be going forward. But that may be just for the stuff that he did post-76 to 98, I think it was. So... But that's why your favorite story hasn't been reprinted from that era. It's because somebody's holding out for more money. That sucks. Which, well, I can't quite blame them. I mean, apparently, according to Jerry Ordway, getting Crisis printed was kind of a minor miracle. It took an act of Congress, and apparently the Pope got involved. So, <laughs> um, 
But apparently, yeah, that was a big thing to get that to get all those people to kind of sign off on it. And then they release it, and it's got a misprint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. Well, I mean to laugh because I'm an asshole, but but everyone knew that. So, what amazed me was when that came out, and and people were actually chasing the misprint version, and I was like. I don't give a damn about value later on. It's like, look, I paid a hundred bucks for this damn thing. I want it to be perfect. I don't want one with the pages messed up just for some weird collectible factor. I want to be able to read the damn thing. That was the purpose of buying it. So, yeah, I do not own the uh, misprint version. Not interested. That thing was like seventy-five bucks to a hundred dollars, wasn't it? It was expensive. And when I when I got it, it was uh, it was a solid hundred because I, yeah. I actually got it for uh, it was a Christmas present from my wife that year. And uh, I have to admit, when when I got my copy in the mail recently, I was just like, "Wow, that's a lot smaller than I thought it was going to be." Because for some reason, I thought it was a little oversized. Uh, no. But no, it, it's it's like your standard height. But I but I but it it was in my mailbox. And I expected like this tome to show up on my front porch <laughs> that the you know the post uh, the postal worker needed like a freaking spotter to to bring it to the to the front uh, front door. But I open it up and as I as I said on Comics Monthly Monday, which you'll hear next week, uh, whoever packaged it, and I don't blame the guy who packaged it. So I'm not I'm not bawling out a eBay seller, but he, he put it in a uh, plastic bag. And some tape got caught on the very bottom. Now, it comes in a slipcase. It comes in a gorgeous gold slipcase. And I, um... Gold or silver? Mine's no, silver. silver. Excuse me. You're right. Silver. I don't know why I was thinking gold. Uh, it came with a gor- in like this nice silver slipcase. And I thought it was like a plastic. <laughs> no. Uh, it's paper because when the the tape I made a rookie comic book mistake as somebody pointed out on, on on Facebook and when I was taking it out of the bag the plastic got caught and it ripped two little whole uh, portions of the silver off the very bottom of the book so if you see it on the shelf you won't know but I know it's there and it's killing me inside <laughs> don't you hate that I do hate that so we do have a uh, book to cover this week. <gasps> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Before we get into that, just real, real quick, because this is not really uh, show related or anything, but I just want to throw it out there because it's uh, it's relevant uh, to me personally. I-, I hope you'll forgive this little quick tangent. Today, as we record this episode, um, you- you'll be hearing it, of course, several days from now. But as we record this episode, today is November 9th, 2011. And uh, I just want to throw out there that uh, it's a very special day for me today. I'm, I'm, I'm on something of a cloud nine because of it. Today, I have officially been a Walt Disney World cast member for one year. Can you believe ah. it? It's been a whole year already. So I am... Uh, quietly at home today it's my day off just quietly celebrating uh that that anniversary maybe uh maybe i'll see if the wife will take me out for dinner tonight or something like that but uh i was just really excited about that and uh and it uh uh devin's letter reminded me of that um i hadn't really said anything about it so far so uh you guys are hearing it first so to speak here on uh tales of the justice society of america but um Along with that, I also I took a new position um, at Disney. I, I a while ago I had gone to uh, our, our sort of like it's sort of like a pseudo human resources department type of thing. It's called casting because we're all cast members, and you go there for you know job related things. Well, I had gone there about seeing what else was available in other departments. You know, just just trying to be upwardly mobile and that sort of thing. And of course, I'm very interested in in moving upward uh, within guest service with a with an ultimate goal of getting into something like, say, uh, tour guiding in the parks or something like that. And so I kind of want to be on that career path. That, that was my original intention. So I went in to see what they had and everything. And uh, long story short, um, I put in for a, a particular position, and it was told, you know, be very patient. There's you know several hundred people on this list. It'll be a while, and just by what was told to me, I really had the impression in my mind that we were looking at like at least a year, maybe like 18 months kind of thing. 
Next thing I know, I don't even think I waited two whole months. I get the call. And uh, so uh, I didn't want to say anything until I was actually through with with training and everything was a done deal and I was in position. But I am uh, sadly, I am no longer in the monorail department, although I do hope that I, I will still be able to occasionally pick up shifts over there just to keep my driver status. But I am now um, a front desk cast member over at Disney's Pop Century Resort and I'm very very excited about it. It's a lot of fun. I'm having a blast. It's a lot of work. It's very uh, busy, very hectic. Um, I did not know when I put in for the position that uh, it is actually uh, the largest and busiest um, resort on property. I had no idea. I just love the place. It was, it's my favorite resort because um, I'd stayed there uh, before and just fell in love with the place but uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm having a really good time with it and uh just wanted to throw that out there, but I did not want to make the same mistake, you know, and I, I say mistake in air quotes that I did when I originally started with Disney. I put it out there right away that, you know, hey, I'm going to monorails. I had no idea when I took the, the position and everything and started the job on exactly how things worked. And how the monorail department works basically is you you go in and there's there's basically two phases of training there's the very beginning phase where you're trained as a, a platform operator which is basically the people that you see you know on the platforms that you know work the gates and load the trains and unload the trains and things like that and that's your basic standard position while you're waiting uh, for drive training you know to be to be trained to actually be a driver everybody that works in monorails has to be able to drive the train and when i started they were very backed up as far as uh the the training schedule for drive training so i was actually in the department for five months before my drive training started drive training is a very very intense bit of training and it's hard and very few people make it through and so I had the added pressure, or at least I felt like I had the added pressure on myself that not only do I want to pass this because it's something I really wanted to do, it was a personal goal for me, I didn't want to fail, but I'd also put myself out there as a, you know, again in air quotes, you know, podcast personality, you know, it, it was out there in the public that I was doing this. So I felt that added pressure of, God, if I don't pass this, I'm going to look like a royal idiot, you know? So it was a lot of pressure, and I didn't want to go through that sort of thing again. You know, if I if I wound up over at the pop and and things didn't work out, I didn't want to you know have to walk away from that situation with my tail between my legs, saying, "Oh, sorry, guys, I'm an idiot. I failed." So I wanted to wait until it was all over with and a done deal before I made the announcement. So that's why, if if you've been wondering what was up with that, that that's why I was so secretive about what was going on. But. uh as I say, I'm over there now and uh, and having a blast. So, if uh, if you come down to uh, Walt Disney World anytime soon, stop by the Pop and see me. I would uh, I'd love to talk to you. Let's go to the Pop. <laughs> anyway, that has nothing at all to do with uh, what we're going to be looking at next. We are. Uh, taking a slight diversion away from uh, All Star Squadron to look at. Uh, a two-parter. This is the uh, the annual uh, Justice League Justice Society uh, mashup, and uh, I don't know about Mike, but I am really excited about this. Oh, I am. So, okay, well, we're gonna dig into this. This is the first part. We are looking at Justice League of America number two nineteen. This is the October nineteen eighty three issue. Features a gorgeous cover by George Perez depicting uh, the JLA satellite. And we've got the JLA members, the Flash, Zaytana, Green Lantern, Elongated Man, and Firestorm being zapped and uh, accosted by the Thunderbolt, Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt, while in the background, horrified and looking on, unable apparently to do anything, you've got Red Tornado, the uh, Golden Age Flash, Power Girl, Our Man, Black Canary, Starman, and The Huntress. It's a really, really nice cover. I like this one quite a bit. And it also says up in the corner, it says, Guest starring the All-Star, not Society, the All-Star Justice Society. I thought that was pretty cool. 
or did I say society? I meant squadron. It doesn't say All Star Squadron. It says All Star Justice Society. I got a kick out of that. That actually would have been a good name for uh, for All Star Squadron. Actually, All Star Justice Society. Anyway, original cover price sixty cents, and the story is entitled Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension. I like that Crisis is in all these titles now. It's it's another one of those things that that made. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths feel very organic to me because it was just, you know, it was like the ultimate crisis story at the time. You know, that we had all these other crises leading up to it. Crises, crises, whatever. Anyway, this one is written by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. Chuck Patton and Romeo Tangel are the artists. John Costanza Letter, Gene D'Angelo, colorist, and Len Wein is the editor. And here is your synopsis. Synopsis. <laughs> it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. The neighborhood of Central City, that is. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. The sky is bluing. And the gun-toting, hostage-taking terrorists are demanding $10 million. But thankfully, the flashes of two worlds, Earth-1 and Earth-2, are on hand to whoop bad guy ass and save the day. So after some witty back and forth banter about why in the hell the Earths are designated backwards, I mean, you know, Earth One was the first one after all to produce superheroes. Speedster Barry Allen and his Golden Age pal Jay Garrick, they head for the transporter tube atop one of the nearby skyscrapers, intending to beam up to the JLA satellite, but instead they are attacked by pink lightning, which coalesces into the form of Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt. The pissed-off T-Bolt readily takes out Barry Allen, but only just kind of zaps the original Flash. None the worse for the wear, the JSA picks up his uh, young friend, whom he diagnoses to be dying, and he heads upstairs. On the aforementioned satellite, there's a party going on right here. All right, see, I can't sing for shit. It's time for the annual JSA-JLA shindig already in progress, and Zatanna... She's grabbing a brew from R2-D2 while the Earth-1 Green Lantern whines to Starman about being confined to Earth now, which oddly foreshadows events that are several months away for regular readers of uh, Green Lantern's title at the time. Our man, the elongated man in Red Tornado, just kind of hanging out in the background, and Firestorm stands off to the side pouting while Black Canary shares a dick joke with uh, the Huntress and Power Girl. Firestorm. <laughs> I knew wow. you'd like that. Firestorm, what she is, if you if you read between the lines of what she's saying in that, she is very clearly telling an off-color joke in that panel. I, I actually dig that quite a bit. I like I like the fact that they would do the same shit that I would do you know, at parties. Anyway, Firestorm. If this was a thermometer, where is my pen? <laughs> Firestorm. He wants to get him a little more Power Girl action, but the uh, Earth 2 gal, she's kind of moved on in her life. And, you know, it has been a whole year since they were all together last time. But after some ribbing from the serving droid and his uh, JLA cohorts, Firestorm finally screws up his courage to go and talk to Power Girl. But before that can happen, they are suddenly interrupted by more pink lightning. It's the T-Balt again, and it promptly puts a hurtin' on Firestorm, Hal Jordan, Elongated Man, and Zatanna. During the battle, the transmatter what's-this that allows transport back and forth between the different Earths is destroyed, and Black Canary uses her sonic whammy to drive away the T-Balt. Jay Garrick shows up with Barry, and the heroes confer. They quickly come to realize that while everyone got smacked around a bit, it was clearly the Earth-1 heroes who were the targets of the T-Balt's attack, and all of the JLAers uh, now lie wounded in the infirmary because of it. And it is realized that uh, Black Canary and Red Tornado, who are now JLAers, originally began life on Earth-2, so presumably that's why they weren't taken out, and the mystery begins after a quick recap of Black Canary's origin, which Starman is quick to point out um, really has nothing at all to do with the current crisis, or does it? The heroes use their big screen TV to spy on the other leaguers uh, where they find Clark Kent and Diana Prince struck down in their workplaces. And for reasons unknown, they are unable to contact the other leaguers. To make matters even worse, reports start pouring in from all over the globe of teamed-up supervillains causing havoc in such places as Mexico, Egypt, and Stonehenge. 
The heroes rush into action, leaving Black Canary on monitor duty. But unbeknownst to her, her pal Starman has stayed behind. I suspect because he's got the hots for her. Well, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and, I'll get into that in the notes. And he talks her into abandoning her post so that they can run off to the Thunderbolt dimension together because everybody knows that monitor duty is just bullshit anyway, right? In the Thunderbolt dimension, Starman and Black Canary are quickly zapped and taken prisoner by the renegade Thunderbolt. And the villain of the piece is revealed to be, wait for it, Johnny Thunder. I bet you didn't see that one coming, did you? But it's not that Johnny Thunder, not the semi-retarded bow tie wearing Johnny Thunder. No, this is the his doppelganger from Earth One. And he's evil. And he ends the issue for us by revealing a Snow White-style glass coffin to our heroes, a coffin containing Black Canary's dead husband, Larry Lance, and another Black Canary. To be continued. In the doppelganger gambit. (laughs) Oh, damn it. Gambit has a doppelganger. (laughs) Now, I'm Um, just... I'm curious. um, I quickly quickly not uh i didn't take a whole lot of time thumbed through my all-star companions volumes one and two and could not find anything really significant with this issue in it has your volume three arrived yet oh yes it has i was about to point that out oh is is Uh, it in is that story in there it is there there aren't as many notes in fact uh i really need to read through this because instead of having like the notes that volume two has uh, they have interviews strewn throughout with the writers of the various crossovers. Hmm. Uh, but the only note that they have is the super criminals involved in this issue are the wizard, icicle, and fiddler from Earth 2, Dr. Alchemy, Felix Faust, and Kronos from Earth 1, the self-same crime champions who had teamed up against the JLA and JSA in JLA 21 and 22, and... That was the very first JLA JSA crossover. Hmm. I did not so, put that together. Um, flash of two writers and two artists. Although the Justice League of America wrote was crucial both to founding the uh, the fanzine alter ego and of comics fandom itself, and thus indirectly to his own forty plus career. Roy Thomas oddly handled writing chores on only two issues of JLA on the third from last team-up, where he and Jerry Conway teamed up again, but they've long since forgotten who did what on the story. Their splash page concept for JLA number 219 was a wink and a nod to the cover of Flash number 123, the very first at Earth 2 tale, mm-hmm. which Chuck Patton and Romeo Tangal pulled off ably. And that's really all they have on this issue. Hmm. Not a bad thing, but uh, I really got to read through this. I got a lot of interviews in here. Yeah, I had that same note about uh, about the splash page on page two being an homage to uh, Flash of Two Worlds. I like yeah, that. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> I figured everybody would. <laughs> it's kind of obvious. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, um, I guess I'll take point on my notes real quick as I put my book back up on my little hutch. Uh, I love this cover. Um... I get the feeling that we really can't see Green Lantern's other hand. Uh, oh, yes, we can. It's it's uh, it's it's right near Zatanna's boob. I think he's trying to cop a feel <laughs> throughout this. And uh, Flash just looks like he's stretching. He's just <laughs> like right before a workout or something. Yeah, he does. So. <laughs> Uh, all of the JSAers on the cover look shocked, except Power Girl, who looks oddly like, oh, what's going on? I mean, she doesn't look like she's ready to leap into action. You know, Huntress is holding Starman back. Black Canary has her arms th- thrown out like, no, don't. And the Flash is like ready to get into action. Power Girl's just standing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the art in this issue was beautiful. Chuck yes. Patton did a great job with all of the characters. Uh, I, I especially like that splash page, which I was like, huh, hey, that's Flash of Two Worlds. Um, on pages three and four, we get the typical, and you all, and this is going to happen in the next team up that we'll be discussing probably in a couple of months. Um, 
you always have civilians or cops or somebody standing around talking about like, hey, that's not the JLA, that's the JSA, or whatever, and you have a, a father telling a little boy, Billy, I used to read about that fellow in the tin hat. He was a hero in a comic book. All heroes or all stars, something like that. And uh, Billy uh, is wearing an E.T. t-shirt, <laughs> just to, to tell you, because, well, that was a popular film. Um, I don't know why they always have civilians doing the exposition for that, but whatever. <laughs> It also looks like on page three that the cop that was complaining about uh, Jay Garrick putting the bullet ricochets into JSA, uh, that it looks like he's wearing a mask in that fourth panel. Yeah. And not sunglasses. So, But man, Jay Garrick looks good in this issue. Patton had a really good sense of his costume. Uh, and just the, the layouts in general. I, I like on page four... The typical explanation of Earth 1 and Earth 2 is done with the Flash's head over two Earths and two moons. That was really good. And the backgrounds on this thing are detailed as hell. Page 5, I love the shot of the Flashes running up the side of the building. That is a really cool panel, and it and it made me very, very... I, just, I get excited when the art is this crisp and clean. I really can't explain it. It just makes it makes the story so much better. Page seven again. Jay Garrick looks really awesome here, even when he's falling back and smashing his head <laughs> into concrete. Um, page eight. Yeah, I got the sense <laughs> with Black Canary. <laughs> oh, it's about this long and and as wide around as a marking pen. <laughs> Tell Oliver I'm impressed, Dinah. I didn't think you could make an arrow that size. Never mind that it would fly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, Power Girl looks really good with her hair this way. Yes. She looks very pretty, actually, throughout this whole thing. I do feel bad for Firestorm, though, because he has such a crush on her, and she doesn't want anything to do with him. Um... I uh, I get the sense, though, that the conversation that Green Lantern and Starman are having, that Starman's really bored. Right. Uh, I've rarely been in space, Green Lantern, but, uh, but I think I know what you mean. And let's see, we going on. Uh, I like the fact that Our Man's here, even though he's a druggie. <laughs> I like Our Man, but yeah, I, I was kind of like, when I realized he was there, I was like, oh, wait a minute, it, Our Man's here. <laughs> Where did that come from? But I do, I've always had a soft spot for Our Man, even though he is a, a drug addict. <laughs> Page 11, Our Man shows how useful he is by getting knocked the hell out right away. <laughs> I've just taken my pill. I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> no, you're <Whoops>. not. <laughs> Red Tornado seems a little out of character, especially in the next issue. But yes. here too, he seems a little emotional. Um. Which isn't a bad thing, but it's just kind of weird. I, um, I I have to say, though, that throughout the issue, reading Black Canary's lines about where she came from and who she is, it's like, I guess, I haven't finished the second part of this because I ran out of time this morning because of work, but I get the sense that everyone thinks that she's the original Black Canary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll go into more of that on next issue. Uh, Starman hanging out with Black Canary. In Starman, the James Robinson series, it would be revealed that Starman and Black Canary had an affair. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I had, I had forgotten about that entirely. So knowing that now, I see this scene like him being on the satellite thinking he can get a little something-something while, uh, <laughs> while everybody else is is a way page 18 the shot of clark kent and and diana prince you know like they're unconscious or slumped over their desks i want someone to photoshop like bottles of whiskey <laughs> spilled next to them i don't, I don't know why that just it just looks like they're passed out at work yeah. is what it looks like it looks like you know perry white could come walking in any morning and go kent what the hell's going on i'm not paying you to sleep <laughs> and then he takes his wallet <laughs> uh, overall it was just I really wasn't expecting much from this issue 
or this particular JSA JLA crossover, mainly because it does involve the Thunderbolt, who I don't really hate the Thunderbolt, and despite how I sound, I really don't despise Johnny Thunder. I just find it would be kind of a boring character. So it's just like this whole thing's about the Thunderbolt. I'm like, oh, God, and it's finally where the whole thing with Black Canary is revealed, blah, blah, blah. But it turned out to be pretty exciting. Uh, my only real fault is I hate the costume that Johnny Thunder of Earth-1 is wearing. And why does he look like Aquaman? <laughs> he does. He really it's... does look a lot like him. But that's all I got. Oh, uh, one more. Sorry. Uh-huh. Uh, Hank Canals has a letter... In the letters page, and later on he would participate as a writer in the DC bonus book program that, uh, uh, if you remember that, Scott, from the late 80s, they would have like 16 extra pages at no additional cost uh, for up-and-coming people. He did that, and uh, he wrote Youngblood number one. Hank Canals did? Yes, he was the scripter on Youngblood number one. Oh, okay. I thought the Panama thing was named after him. <laughs> I have a few notes on this one. Uh, my my first and foremost one being that the cover is freaking awesome. I'll take a poster or T-shirt right now. Thank you. Um, Chuck Patton, not a name you hear uh, bandied about much, but a hell of an artist. It's a shame that he didn't stick around more. Um, I did a minor bit of research on him, meaning that uh, I looked up his Wikipedia entry. And according to that, he just kind of got disgusted with comics and, and got out and went into animation. So I'm glad that, you know, he's still getting you know regular work and everything. But uh, just a hell of an artist. I wish he had stuck around because I could see where his style was really going somewhere. This, to me, it reminds me of, uh, it might seem like a bit of a stretch, but this reminds me of, say, Tom Mandrake meets Paris Collins is kind of where I think his art style is. I really like it a lot. He's got a very clean line, and uh, he's got a very distinctive style, and he's great with the action. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a really, really some, uh, some dynamic stuff. But he would do uh, a, a you know a, a short run here in Justice League of America, and that was pretty much it. I mean, he did a couple other things, but this is pretty much his claim to fame in the world of comics, and uh, it's a great little run. It's just a shame that's all we ever got out of him as far as comics go. Uh, let's see. We mentioned the Flash Two Worlds thing. Um, I really like page four where uh, the Earth to Flash, he's very good natured about it, but he is basically he's bitching about the fact of why the <laughs> hell is my Earth Earth 2? You know, we were here first kind of thing. I like that. Jackass. It actually makes a lot of sense. I, I've, I've often thought that they should be Earth 1 and it should be the other way around. But of course, they're not going to make the, the primary bread and butter universe for DC Comics Earth 2. <laughs> Just not going to happen. Um Let's see. Talked about the dick joke. Talked about, uh, again, I'll mention the, the footnote on page uh, eight here with Green Lantern. I just, I had to look this up because it, you know, you've got Green Lantern and he's kind of, I just read it. The way I like to read it is that he's being very whiny about it and he's telling Starman that, you know, well, he's, he's glad to be back on Earth. He kind of misses being out there in space and everything. And there's a footnote that says, obviously, this story takes place after the upcoming Green Lantern 172. Just for shits and giggles, I looked it up. Green Lantern 172 is months away from where we are with this issue right here. I just find that kind of odd that, you know. And, they, they, and he was nothing but excited about getting back to Earth. He didn't want to be exiled into space. Ah, uh, so remember that. Yeah, he came back to be with Carol. He was, The only reason he was exiled is that he was spending so much time uh, on Earth that the Guardians were like, dude, you have an entire sector to uh, to, to patrol, and you're, you know, hanging out with these damn dirty apes. So <laughs> you, you need to get your ass out there. He's like, no. And they're like, okay, fine. You can't go back to Earth for a year. And thus was, like, the most boring year of Green Lantern yep. ever. <laughs> Which is, you know, that was the time I was really getting into comics, too. So I think that that really plays a lot into why I always kind of found uh, Hal Jordan to be the boring Green Lantern, because that's kind of where I came in. Um, 
I really liked the serving droid because I, I can't help but wonder if this was a nod to Return of the Jedi with R2-D2 serving drinks because this is basically a robot whose body is, you know, uh, an ice chest with, you know, with ice in it and a bunch of beers or, or in this case, root beers. And he's got, you know, wheels and arms. So <laughs> it's very much like R2 as the serving droid. I thought that was kind of cool. Um Something that momentarily uh, confused the hell out of me was – I'm trying to find – what the hell page was it on? I failed to make a note of it here. Ah, here it is. Panel one of page 13 where Red Tornado is smacked across the room and he smashes through the tube. I thought this was the transporter tube, the one that you know carries them back and forth between Earth and the uh, satellite. Turns out – this is the transmatter tube, the one that carries them back and forth between Earths. Since when the hell was that a tube? Because remember we joked about that before, that it looked more like Ozymandias' machine that he used to zap uh, Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen, remember? It was, like yes. a, it was like a tunnel that they walked in or something, and then they came out of like a, a big screen TV, remember? Yes. At least that was the last team up anyway i guess they got a tube in the meantime but it's just confusing because then it means you've got all these tubes hanging around in your main deck i guess i don't know um uh, <laughs> going back to earth no you're going to well you went to earth too my well i hope he has a nice time <laughs> my biggest note for this one and really i did thoroughly enjoy this issue i love the action i'm really digging the story i like the places it goes i love all the uh the little cameos even by heroes that aren't necessarily a part of the story there's a lot of nice flashbacks so we do see just a little bit of superman and everything but my biggest note on on this issue my biggest just flat out wtf moment was whoa 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 wait 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 they can tune in to the other leaguers at any time on their big screen TV. That's that's not cool. You know, I mean, I imagine that even Superman, even Superman has to take a dump, you know. So what happens if they decide, well, hey, let's look in on Superman and Superman's, you know, in the can? I mean, no, I don't want that. And, and how the hell does this work exactly? So they have like a little like a little camera installed in clark kent's office in the daily planet or uh, it's like um during for the commentary for the first mr freeze episode of batman the animated series uh bruce tim and the other creative people talk about the fact that the security footage that's in the episode is done from like different angles and it's edited together <laughs> right. and, and they're talking about the fact that in most of the times it's not a static shot and that's something that carries over into comics, too. It's never, like, from one angle or anything. Or where the hell is that camera? I mean, did, did like, The Flash come in one day into Clark Kent's office in a disguise with a phony mustache going, Just here to clean the windows, mister, and installs the camera? I mean, what the hell? <laughs> exactly. That That's the story I want. Well, Star Trek, the original Star Trek was notorious for that, too, because there was the one episode where... Uh, where Kirk had he was he was down on the planet where if you drink the water your metabolism sped up to the point where you you kind of disappeared from the regular universe and sounded like a fly and sounded like a fly yeah and there's a part where he leaves a log for Spock to find that which that just sounded incredibly rude um, he leaves behind a recording for Spock to find and in that which is supposed to be recorded by the computer. It's doing like dramatic close-ups and shit as he talks. It's like that's one smart computer that knows when to zoom in when you're at a particularly intense part, you know, of your of your little monologue. That's the program they did, you know. They, it, it sorts through all the footage and then does a little bit of computer generation and stuff and makes it more dramatic. I guess there's my no prize. Thank you very much. <laughs> But uh, I like this a lot. I, I thought this was a fantastic uh, beginning to the crossover and everything. And, uh, and I like where it goes from here. So uh, I'll be excited when we get to uh, part two. It's definitely one of the better ones. And, and it's kind of interesting that it seemed like we've covered a lot of these, especially in the eras that we... Uh, that we've talked about. Because, you know, we covered the, the, the one where they went to Earth-S... 
the one where they went to Apocalypse. Uh, but it seemed like once we got into the 80s, they just got a lot better. And I don't know if that's because it's our sensibilities as comic fans that we would prefer stuff like that. Or maybe it's because that's when Dick Dillon stopped drawing the title. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we're not insulting the man, one, because he's dead, and that would be mean, <laughs> and two, because he was a serviceable artist. It's not right. like he was terrible, it's just when you compare him to somebody like George Perez, or even Don Heck, or, he, in this case, Chuck Patton, it, this is so much more dramatic just on its face. So it's kind of sad that once they were wrapping up and getting really good, uh, they stopped doing them. So... <laughs> We've only got two more of these. I know. One thing I, well, I, I technically just realized that uh, that I think really works well for me with this story is that for a change, it's not some big cosmos shaking event. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't them saving the Earth or Earths or universe or multiverse or anything like that. At the heart of this, as we'll see with the next issue. This is really an internal family matter. You know, this this kind of tidies up a bit of continuity with one of the characters. And so it feels very, um, you know, very in-house. It, it's not a huge cosmic threat. And I, I like that for a change where, you know, because sometimes the as awesome as something like, say, the, the prior one, uh, which I always get the name of that confused. Is it Crisis on Earth Prime? Was that? Yes. That one for all its awesomeness doesn't have a whole lot of character building in there. Not not a whole lot of character moments. It's really more about the cosmic scale of the story. I like something like this where you're, you're going to get a bit more characterization. Uh, You know, everybody's going to get their, their moment in the sun. And and like I say, it has a more family feel to it because they're taking care of kind of team business, family business. I, I like that. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, I did enjoy this so much. And uh, and it was a good read because I went into it like you. I went in with very low expectations because typically this is an era I remember very well as being um, great Perez covers, yet the inside stories were largely forgettable. And so it was really you know a, a pleasure to read this and go, wow, this is a damn good issue because I didn't expect it to be at all. Nah, uh, great comic. It was. I'm just staring at this page where Starman comes in, and it does look like he's there to seduce her. Yes, it does. (laughs) I thought we could work together without the others. (laughs) Naked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will will say, though, that the one piece of wonky art was uh, on page seven when they were doing the flashback Aquarius, the dude with the mohawk. Looks looks like he's saying, cheese. I want cheese. He looks like that red dude with the mechanical hand that fights the Legion. I can't remember what his name is. T-Y-R? Yeah, Tyr. That's right. Tier, yeah. yeah. I, I always just said T-Y-R because that's how I said it the first time when I saw him as a superpowers figure. So. See, I started well, to say Tyrock, and I knew that wasn't right, but I was close. I had the letters. No, no, <laughs> no Tyrock was the uh, the guy that lived on the island with all the black people that didn't show up, but once every hundred years or something <laughs> like that. There's a, I don't know if it's premiered yet, but you can see interviews on YouTube and a trailer for it. It's uh, it's um, basically a documentary interviewing African American creators on how african-american superheroes are treated and uh there's apparently a section on tyrock oh god that i really want to see and one of them's like i was like dude put on some pants was his comment (laughs) (laughs) well that is all we have this issue uh issue episode we always do that um no uh no elsewhere or no ads because we've covered all of those already uh, since we're lining these up with the books that we're covering i am going to assume that if they continue the jla jsa crossover trades they just released uh one back in april that i think caught us up to the apocalypse storyline so i would think that this would be in the next one that would be coming down the pike if there is a next one. I don't know how successful those uh, those volumes are doing. I still got to pick up volume five because I have the first four. 
Well, folks, that's it for this week. Be sure to visit our website at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com for more exciting podcasts featuring both Scott and myself, as well as several other sad and pathetic human beings who've nothing better to do with their time but sit in front of a microphone and edit. Join our forum at <laughs> www.forumforgeeks.com where you can comment on this week's show and interact with us and your fellow listeners. We have built a great, fun, and more importantly, friendly community there, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. As always, you can reach us by email at talesofthejsa at gmail.com. And of course, Scott and I are both on Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, if you enjoy the show, won't you please take a moment to mention us on the social networking site of your choice whenever you're listening. Word of mouth is still the best way to let others know about our show, and we really appreciate your helping and uh, grow our listenership. Thanks to you so much for listening, folks. Be sure to join us next time for Tales of the Justice Society of America. <laughs> we'll miss you. Stop crying at you again. <laughs> Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the foe. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we get the Alamo. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor. And go on.